I have started and exited multiple companies. I am an avid investor in early stage companies. I advise some of the hottest startups and have worked with many of the top tech companies across numerous industries. I'm a software developer by trade, but I also have an MBA from Duke University. I seek out companies who defy conventional wisdom to drive innovation in any industry. And in this podcast, I interview the founders of those companies for you. Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in. I've got a guest who is literally one of my favorite people. I have Dave Dalton, former CEO of, of GMI, uh, a contract electronics manufacturer in Charlotte. Actually, I guess it's technically in Mooresville. Uh, we'll talk about GMI today and its successor company, um, but I hope to cover a lot of other ground because, as you will quickly figure out, Dave is involved in a lot of really interesting things here in town. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for joining me this evening. John, what a pleasure. Thanks a lot. <laughs> okay. Especially up here in the man cave. In the man cave. Uh, Dave hasn't been by the house yet, and, and the studio that we're coming to you from is on our on our third floor. Uh, so it's also the home of my man cave with a sauna and a <laughs> red light and all sorts of other goodies. So, so first off, Dave, can, can you tell the listeners what GMI is? Yeah, GMI is uh, the name of the company actually is General Microcircuits Incorporated. I mm-hmm. uh, got started in 1980, and we're a EMS, which is Electronic Manufacturing Services Company. And we got started back in 1980. And uh, the cool thing is we've, uh, we're have we getting ready to start our 41st year, which wow. I guess is our fifth decade. And uh, it's, it's um, uh, we've been at it for quite some time. So, so. What is EMS or what does an EMS company do for the people who don't know? I, first of all, I didn't know until I met you and needed to sure. hire an EMS. Sure. So, so uh, need to say almost everything that we pick up nowadays has electronics in it. Mm-hmm. And in order to have electronics, it has components. And you've got to be able to put those components on a circuit board. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of products out there. And if everybody did their own, it would be very, very expensive. So someone will come to us who has electron, a product that has electronics in it, and they'll come to us, and we basically provide the labor services mm-hmm. to build those boards for them. Um, that way, our customers, what they end up doing is they spend their resources on engineering and marketing and mm-hmm. sales, and then they basically allow us to be their manufacturer for them. So, so it's labor that they're saving on, but it's also pretty capital intensive. I've been into your facilities, and it, it looks like a pretty capital intensive business. It is. It is. Um, so, you know, I mean, understandable, there's a lot of manufacturers around the world that do electronics. Most of mm-hmm. them now, of course, is in Asia, but we still have quite a bit here in the U.S. and other lower cost regions outside the U.S., um, but each, each line that builds a product will be at least a million dollars. And, for instance, in our facility here in North Carolina, we have five lines, and then down in Costa Rica, we've got an additional three. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I think the other thing that my experience in working with you through the years is that uh, it, it's also the the supply chain management. It's I would I remember giving you a bill of materials and then you just go figure out the cheapest way to buy everything. Right, and right. You know, it's really interesting because uh, contract manufacturing is what, what we're in. It really didn't really get started until the early 70s. Okay. And uh, it all started as labor only. And the main reason back in the 70s is there was a shortage of labor. And uh, because it was a special skill set and because technology was changing, not everybody wanted to spend that amount of time on, on the technology of learning. So that's when contract manufacturing started, and it was all consigned. So what would happen is an OEM, uh, a manufacturer of that product, 
would actually send um, the material to someone like ourselves and we would build it using their material. But um, back in the early 80s, uh, interest rates were up like, you know, double digit. They were mm-hmm. like 18 to 22 percent. And there were some smart CFOs out there that realized, hey, we need to f- get our supplier to buy that material and need to get it off our books. Because at that time, of course, inventory was extremely, especially carrying inventory. So the contract manufacturers went from labor only to turnkey. Okay. And so that really was the plethora. That's where things really, really grew. That's awesome. How long have you been involved with, with the GMI? Um, I got, uh, I guess initially my dad was one of the early investors, and that was back in 1980 when he got early invest. And then I actually, he, he, um, he built the company up, uh, sold it in 87, and I didn't join until 1990. Okay. And then, um, and then in ninety seven, ninety eight, um, we had an opportunity to buy the company back, and so we approached my dad and asked if he'd be the angel investor, and so he was willing to be the angel investor, but he allowed uh, several managers, including me, to get involved. That's uh, great. With some options. That's great. He was he was just an investor. And can can you talk a little bit about about your your dad's history since since you've mentioned him? Yeah, sure. So the uh, the neat thing about dad, dad is, uh, I guess it's third generation here in Charlotte. Wow. And uh, he is, uh, he's actually a young 95. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he uh, was in World War II. Wow. And uh, so was his uh, three other brothers. And uh, he also had a uh, sister who was uh, the baby of the family. She was probably, I want to say maybe 10 years younger than, or maybe actually 11 years younger than he was. But um, up until just this past year, um, all of his siblings were alive. Um, the two oldest ones have just recently passed away. Okay. The three that are still here are, are extremely strong, and I expect to see them living for another 10 years or so. That's great. Have, having met your dad and seen him recently, he's uh, more energetic than most 60-year-olds. Oh, yeah, he puts me to shame. Uh, he still <laughs> plays golf twice a week. Um, he's still extremely active. Uh, dad really had a very, very strong work ethic, and then once he retired, I think he became a much more social, very active socially, and he is very engaged still here in town. Uh, you'll see him around town. He's got um, jet white hair, and uh, he's got a full head of hair. Uh, still very, very active. Um, his mind, as crisp as can be, still drives. Um, he, wow. uh, he His significant other is my mom's best friend. My mom passed away about 10 years ago. Okay. And so they now do quite a bit together around town and still very, very engaged in the community. Yeah, he, he really is a model businessman and, and citizen. When you think of his many lessons, what are some that stick out in your mind? Well, the, the, I think the biggest thing is, uh, to, well, the two things, of course, is uh, the work ethic that he, he demonstrated. Um, he, he instilled that in all of us. And then the other one, of course, is service. Um, he, but it, what's real curious is with that is he always wanted to ensure that you didn't spread yourself too thin. He, he always really strongly urged us to find something that we were keenly interested in and stick with it. Don't go from year to year and change over. Just find those things that you're passionate with and stick with that because he says you're going to make a greater impact doing that. that. That's a great lesson. One of the ones that stuck out that I heard about, and I'll take a detour here for a second, was when um, – is when I remember when I first met you, you were driving some American-made car, probably a Sabra, something like Century. I think it was probably a Buick uh, Century. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, yeah, it was a Century, I think. And uh, and and you told me you, you said, yeah, Dad always has always taught me that you can't have always instilled in us that you can't have a car that a middle manager can't afford. Exactly. And uh, and I remember then one day seeing you in a in a in a BMW 5 series. It was used. <laughs> it was it used. used. It was a significantly nicer car and I thought I had gotten you. I was like, "Oh, you're you're veering from your dad's lesson." And you smiled and you said, "No, one of our middle managers showed up in a yes, 5 series." Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, my dad my dad's background for electronics was in textiles. Okay. And uh, he was in Mooresville and he had, he ran a couple of plants there. Okay. And uh, it was really interesting. Back then, of course, everything was by America. 
and you would go into that parking lot, and everyone had Buicks. Okay. Uh, is it Buicks, Pontiac, <laughs> Pontiacs, or Chevrolets? You would not find a foreign car inside there. Of okay. course, this was back in the 60s and 70s. We just it's fought a war with Germany and Japan. <laughs> Why would we buy their cars? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so getting back to GMI, what were some key milestones in the growth of, of the company after you got involved in it? It's been really a lot of fun for the past, you know, for the past four decades to kind of look. And it's, um, I really take GMI as really um, every 10 years we've had to reinvent ourselves. Uh, the first 10 years, which was the 80s, we were truly a, a pioneer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were, um, there was a new technology called surface mount technology, um, which was um, you're able to put a lot of umph in a smaller package size. And we had bought a machine that was serial number two. So oh, wow. we were actually really the second in the east of the Mississippi was doing what we were doing. So those first 10 years were challenging just because there were not a whole lot of customers out there. And uh, so the first 10 years, that's what we were. The second year was our foundational years. We had been bought by a company out in California called Microsemi, and they owned us for just on just around 10 years. And that's when we really created the foundation of being a real company. And then in the late 90s, um, I had two of my customers approach me and told me that my pricing was a little bit steep and that if, I'd, if I could not find an alternative, then they probably would have to you know, shop the business and go elsewhere. And so I took a chance. And, and two months after 9-11, I went over to Asia with my CFO, and we went over there and investigated Asia, and we built five alliance partners. And so we uh, grew the company from like 13 million to 80 million within a two to three year period. Wow. And that was just a great growth span. And then, um, and then in 2008, the economy softened mm-hmm. and, um, and the manufacturing lead times uh, shrunk. And so Asia no longer made the sense that it once did. And so I uncovered a, a little country down in Central America called Costa Rica. And I was going to go down there to build LEDs for Cree and also for Hubble. Um, because they had been building products in Asia and were dissatisfied. But I went, when I went down to Costa Rica, um, I realized the talent level was too good to waste on a little simple um, assemblies. So I went for more complex industrial commercial products. And so we have been, since uh, 2011, we've been down in Costa Rica. It's a wonderful country. I finally visited uh, it a couple of years ago. I actually met the president with, of the yes. country once with you. Yes. I remember that. Oh, that yeah. was pretty awesome. But a very highly educated workforce. I mean, it's there's some big American shops that do a lot of very high-tech work. Yeah, there's there's there. over 100 uh, multinational companies down there. Um, I mean, we have the who's who are down there when it comes to U.S. companies. But um, the, the literacy rate down there is like 96%. Um, they do not have an armed forces. And the reason is that they rely on uncle Sam to take care of them. Mm -hmm. They understand that no one's going to invade as long as we're just to the North. Um, so they put their money into the healthcare, uh, the infrastructure down there is a little weak. Um, but they have, it's interesting. They're the first country in the world, I think to be a hundred percent renewable. They have a lot of hydro, um, and they have a few other types of wind, um, and solar as well. So, so clearly you were committed to, to offshore, although the strategy has changed through the years, obviously. How much of this strategy was in, informed by your dad's prior experiences? You mentioned he was in textiles. Oh, and, yeah. and as we all know, a lot of the textile business really went overseas and I think changed I, dramatically the, the face of North Carolina for sure. Yeah, the, the, I kind of call it the uh, coattails effect. Um, it seemed like if we would just follow the way textiles went, then that's where we should go. So it's, uh, it was interesting. So um, the textiles always goes for the lower cost geography. And so we would chase after that. And um, it's interesting is, um, for instance, so well, I guess we'll hear a little bit later, but we were recently purchased and, uh, and the company that bought us is in Vietnam. And understandably, textiles went to Vietnam as well. And so we're now in Vietnam as well. 
So it's just wherever the lower cost geographies are, we chase after, and, and that's pretty much where textiles were. Great. And what is you, you mentioned a little bit of the history of of um, EMS and contract electronics manufacturing. What is the point where a company might consider doing their own manufacturing, or do they not? I mean, is there a point where you, you're doing so much of it and at such a volume? Because obviously. I guess Apple outsources some of it and does some assembly. Is there a point where, where it makes sense to bring it in-house? Uh, yeah, I think the biggest thing is if the volume is not great, um, then people will typically do it themselves. Or if they're wanting to make sure that they're protected with their intel, um, especially at the final assembly level. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of medical companies still build their products inside. Okay. Um, they may do the electronics outside, but they'll bring it inside to do the final assembly or what we call integration. Okay. Um, or there's a lot of customization required. Um, the other thing is, it's interesting, when we got started back in the early 80s, life cycles of products were as long as 18 to 24 years. Now we will be building a product that, while it's on the line, will be engineer changed, and they'll be changing it to another re revision. Um, Obsolescence in, in our business is uh, it's amazing. Um, I mean, that's, you know, everybody wants uh, the next best thing. Mm -hmm. And so we may be building something that, you know, within two to three months may be obsolete because someone wants something better and faster and newer. Wow. Wow. So you and I met through, through NextGrid, um, and we started working with you when you were doing, when we were doing very, very small deployments, our products were in a constant state of flux <laughs> to, to put it mildly. And, and we didn't know much. We weren't designing for manufacturing. We were designing for, this is what we want to do. And so we, I, I, I take it, we were a pretty painful <laughs> customer in the early days. Uh, can you speak to some of the challenges of working with startups, whether it's NextGrid or other other startups? Well, I think the first thing we do is we we look at the competency of the, the group that's either managing or owning it. Um, and if they're competent and it looks like that they've got a bright future and we'll make it to the other end, then we're willing to take a chance. We used to call that our American Dream division. <laughs> and uh, and there's no question, NextGrid has got a very, very talented group um, at the time you were involved as well. And uh, understandably, I don't think you guys were – you know, heavily capitalized, but you guys had great promise. You guys had actually won a couple of businesses against some of the bigger guys, which was pretty impressive. And we had already had a track record. We had worked with uh, probably anywhere from 10 to 12 other smart grid companies. And the energy sector at that time was, was really expanding. And so at that time, we were looking at energy-related uh, companies, and we were also looking at industrial controls. And you guys just happened to be here in Charlotte, and so or, or you were here in Charlotte. Yep. So we were able to kind of start working on that relationship, but, but we felt like early on that you guys had an opportunity to really make it. So we, in, in many ways, I don't say we funded you, but we basically, um, you know, helped kind of, there may be in a month or two where you guys weren't able to pay on time. You, you were, we were our able, bank for a while. Yeah, I, so, I thank you for not uh, yeah. closing on us. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that situation is, you know, that's something that we could do. We were a little bit mature, but it was like the, the bet, you know, you can always take bet on 10%. Um, but you're only going to, it's going to, you may make sure that the bet that you take is, um, it's got a chance of making it. And so we had utmost confidence in your team. Well, we're, we're glad for that. It, it, and, and I, and hopefully it's worked out. We oh, I, I know that there have been so much bigger orders that have come through. Oh, it's been great. It's been great. It's been <laughs> and, great. And a big year spinning up for 2020. I don't know if you've seen the pipeline. I have seen, yeah, but. we're excited. We're excited <laughs> about it. But, the, but that's the interesting thing is in, in our business, um, you never know what's going to walk in the front door. Yeah. We've really had some really exciting. When uh, you've done products. work for GE in the past, if I'm oh, not Oh yeah, mistaken. we actually, uh, they had, um, they had actually bought the, uh, the wind technology from, uh, another, another company. And so we actually uh, built that product here. And I think we were the first one to actually transfer an electronic product in the energy sector 
to a lower cost geography. We had an alliance partner in, uh, in Thailand. And so we got a chance to move the product to Thailand, built it there for about five or six years, and really grew the wind energy business for GE. And it was, it was, a, it was an exciting time to see the growth of that. Oh, I can imagine. So what percentage of your business do you suppose is with smaller, younger companies like a NextGrid versus bigger, more established ones like a GE? And has that changed through the years? Um, I'd say right now, it's, or I'd say over the years, it's probably been like an 80-20. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question since probably 2010, we've gone after a more discerning um, crowd. Um, uh, we've probably taken a little bit less risk just because we could. We've made significant investments in our operation, and those investments have attracted a larger clientele. Yep. Um, and so we haven't had to. Um, make um, maybe as many um, bets yeah, bets <laughs> as we had. That um, 80-20 is about what we strove for yeah. at, at level. We, you need to take bets on these smaller companies mm-hmm. because some of them become bigger. But it's for us, it was just as, as much of a headache to manage a $50,000 project as yes. it was a $500,000 yeah. project. And you don't, you don't have to be the banker for the five for an AIG in our case yeah. or a Wells Fargo, but we might for a startup where they can't afford to pay us yeah. on time. But it, but it is, it's so much more fun working with an entrepreneur, uh, exactly. working someone that owns the business uh, than dealing with a part of a supply chain professional um, because a supply chain professional is basically monitoring a bucket and uh, they're being measured on how much, um, how, if they've saved a nickel or not. Yeah. And they're not looking at the bigger picture. And the great thing about an entrepreneur is that they're looking at the bigger picture. They're looking to change the world. Yeah. And, and you ask any entrepreneur, and that's what they're going to say. And that's one thing I was going to say. I was, I was thinking about the other day is uh, the common theme that I've seen with the successful companies that have come through GMI, um, the main one is every entrepreneur we've dealt with has no inhibitions. Um, if I gave them the phone number to the Pope, they would not hesitate to pick it up and give the Pope a phone call. Um, the ones that have been unsuccessful have been the ones that have been timid yeah. and have not been willing to take that risk. And I think that over the 40 years I've been in the business, that is the common thing that I've seen. They're not necessarily the most outgoing, but um, when, it, when, you know, when, it, when it's time to make a decision, they will make a decision. I think that's a very astute observation for sure. So are there any trends going on right now in manufacturing that, that you've got your eye on? Um, of course, the biggest one, and, and it's all about Internet of Things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the Internet of Things is going to be much more segmented. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hot market. Everyone in my industry is looking to figure out you know, how to play with it. Um, of course, is, is that for, to improve internal operations or Internet of Things for your clients or maybe both? Oh, it's just for, for us, it's just to produce. We're looking to try to figure out what 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 products are going to be out there. They're going to need to be uh, manufactured. So that's that's the sectors we're looking for. Yep. And of course, I just got I was in Shanghai last week. And of course, we're talking about 4G and 5G here. Of course, they're talking 6G over there. <laughs> They've actually implemented 6G. At least that's what the newspaper said over there. So, oh, wow. you know, they're trying to, you know, and that's, you know, just a, maybe a, a little sidestep just a little bit sure. that I'm seeing is, um, and I've now been over to China now three times just in the past year. And there had been about a, probably about a six year that I had not gone over there because we had focused on Costa Rica. It is amazing. Shanghai, for instance, I know you've been over there. It is amazing the advances that Shanghai has made over the years. It's so much cleaner than it was. It's a, it's a world-class city. Yep. Um, it's very clean. There's no crime. Um, you know, the thing is, they, they don't have a democracy over there. So if they, if they, you know, if they decide they want to do something, by gosh, they do it. Yeah. Um, they have a, a museum over there called the Urban Design Museum, which I, I would suggest anybody over there, that's a must and it just goes to show you, I think we have, what, one line here of the, uh, of, of the, the light rail. rail? Yeah. I think they've got 256 stops. Wow. And they didn't get started until 1994. 
Jeez. that was the first. So I mean, and just I wonder how many London has because that's a very well established yeah. tube. But but, but it's this been is, around for a hundred yeah, years. So. But this one is so clean. It, it's just you know it just goes to show you um, if they put the will to it, they're going to. So you know, I know yesterday, for instance, you know we just signed the the. Uh, the treaty with China. And so I it's do want to talk about that in a yeah, little it's bit. Be, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, so do you have any advice for an entrepreneur looking to create a product that requires uh, a contract manufacturer? Um, let's see what it would be. Um, of course, the, uh, the first thing I would recommend is you've got to find a distribution source. You've got to find someone that's going to uh, be willing to buy the product. Um, <laughs> Customers mean, are a good thing. Yes, they are. Um, you can spend, I mean, that's the one thing. We have seen so many products come through our front door um, that look so outstanding. But unfortunately, that entrepreneur has not done the legwork to actually find someone that's going to buy it. So, you know, they get all excited about it. But until they can find that channel to get the product out there, it's, it's really a waste of time. Yeah. So that's the first thing we look at. We will ask them, they either got to have great funding where they're going to be willing to spend a ton of money or they're going to need to find a way to get it out there because, I mean, we've got to get paid. Yeah. And uh, we want to. We have a limited amount of resources, so we want to make sure that we uh, find that that company that's going to build a lot of something. And I, I think that's great advice. And I think that applies whether it's manufacturing or not. Is mm-hmm. is figure out how to sell your product. And, and it's a chicken and egg. But you, if you can sell it even before you build it, it's a stressful way to do oh, it. But I, I, I got to tell you a story. <laughs> this is great. Um, our, our probably our first claim to fame was uh, we built the uh, little mic wand that goes for Federal Express. Okay. And um, and it was that about, was a competitive differentiator for oh, them, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, was it ever? Yeah. Um, so so we actually had there was a guy here in Charlotte named Mike Weaver. And uh, he went out and met with Freddie Smith out in Memphis, mm-hmm. and he gave him the grand, great sales job. Mike Weaver's just an incredible sales guy. But anyway, he went out to Freddie Smith, and he said, hey, I can, I can build a product for you that's going to be able to read barcodes, and, uh, and you'll be able to check every zip code, and you'll be able to deliver, and you'll know where the package is. And you couldn't so, do that. Or you Fre- couldn't build it at the time. Oh, that, no, no, no okay. it, was, it was, no, there's no way. And, and so, <laughs> so anyway, so uh, Freddie said, I'll buy you. I'll give you six months. You bring it here, and I'll buy it. So he came back to Charlotte. And he had two partners. He was an entrepreneur. And he said, oh, I got great news, bad news. I just sold it. The bad thing is we only have six months to put it in. <laughs> and I'm not really sure how it happened, but somehow uh, Handheld Products got connected with us at GMI. Yeah. And so within six months, uh, we built the very first one. And uh, he actually flew back out, and he actually had the, the, the wand you know, in his pocket. So it had a you know, first-class seat wow. over to FedEx, and he sold it. And that rest is history. That one product right there revolutionized the packaging industry. Sure. I mean, now you can see, I mean, that bark, I mean, that's really the first one of its kind. Yeah. And so it was built in little old Morrisville, North Carolina. But it's, it's exciting to see those things that yeah. happen. No, it, we, we had a similar, not similar, but same kind of thing with uh, our first major client, um, we were initially, our business model at NextGrid was to use a, a product that somebody else manufactured. And they had some software that we had to integrate with. And we had proven out the basics, but we knew it wouldn't scale. And we came to them after winning a very large contract for, I think, 10,000 units. And and we told them, we gave them a list of what we needed um, to have changed on the device. And they came back with some really crazy demands. And um, we decided to just uh, start making those those chips ourselves uh-huh. and we we didn't know how to do it we we had to go hire the engineering talent we had to go design and that was around the time that we met you and then you guys were an integral partner in getting that 
that product done. In that particular case, we had six months to deliver and it ended up being nine and we had to kind of manage the relationship with the client. They weren't happy about it. But in retrospect, that was the game changer for NextGrid, bringing that capability in house in terms of owning that intellectual property. Mm. You guys were building it, but we, you know, that, that was our intellectual property. The original model, we would have just been a middleman assembling somebody else's product into, into our devices. Um, one of, the, one of the things I was going to share with you is this to show you how small world is. Um, we had uh, within a month, well, I guess it was maybe two months time, three uh, set top box, of course, you know, on top of your, mm-hmm. your television set, you know, they're this size now, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, they were, well, like they were this huge. Big. They were yeah. huge. And so uh, we actually had three, I mean, it was, this was right when they were coming out. We had the three top competitors within two months come to us to have them built. And wow. so it was really crazy. So we all made bets in, internally who was going to win out. Uh, two of them actually were in Knoxville. The other one was out in California. Okay. And we, within a two-month period, built all three competitors. Oh, wow. And one of the three got the lion's share of the business. Okay. And it was just really the other two. Um, one of them, of course, uh, went out of business. They just weren't well-funded. Mm-hmm. The other one was a really big company and could have probably stuck with it, but they decided to move to, on. Yeah, move on. Yeah. They threw the white flag in. <laughs> but it, it just shows you a small world. Yep. Well, so, so you mentioned China before, and, and you mentioned the trade deal, which is very topical, obviously. Mm-hmm. The trade war leading up to this agreement, and, and even now, it, 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 do you think, do you take it, and I don't like to get political on here at all, but, but I think you're fairly informed on this. Um, is this rhetoric, or have you seen real consequences um, leading up to the, this agreement? Oh, well, the biggest thing for us is, and it's, it's been painful for our, our customers, our U.S.-based customers, um, so, you know, Trump ended up or the administration ended up putting a, anywhere from a 15 to 25% tariff on electronic components and also printed circuit boards. And uh, so any component that we bought from China, which right now that's where most of the components are being bought, uh, once they land in the U.S., there was an actual 15 to 25% tariff put on it. Um, and do you feel like you bear the brunt of that or no, do your no, clients our, 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 customers customer? did, our customers do well yeah. I'm not sure all I know is so for instance we have one customer this year that that um, I think we end up invoicing them over six hundred thousand dollars of um, of tariffs cost and um, you know so what they did with it um, you know I think in some cases they were able to pass it on to their customer who the question is was their customer able to put it on to their other customer so sure you know it trickles down so I mean, that was, um, and the thing is, when it was, when it hit, um, it pretty much came in January of 2019. And at that time, pretty much everybody's budgets were already set. So, you know, so nobody really expected it. And so, and I've talked to people outside the electronics firm, and there have been a lot of people that have absorbed it. Some have been able to pass it on. Um, I haven't looked at the details of yesterday, but I've heard rumblings that, that uh, some of the tariffs that were 15% are going to half. So I'm hoping that's going to be an improvement. Uh, we've been very, very fortunate with our Costa Rican operation and with the new Vietnam operation. Um, we've been able to sidestep quite a bit. Um, Next Grid, for instance, mm-hmm. um, they've been very, very fortunate. Um, they made, you know, they were, they don't realize how wise they were, but uh, when they came to us, they gave us the opportunity to shift the business from North Carolina down to Costa Rica. And so what that does is it sidesteps. And so all the electronic parts that are coming out of China go to Costa Rica and they sidestep the tariff okay. and we transform it in Costa Rica and we ship it up here. There's no tariff. Interesting. So, so on the so side tangent, but does Costa Rica have a VAT? Is that how they tax it? Or? No, it was a free trade zone. Okay. And so, uh, so we actually set up in a free trade zone. So we're, what we're basically doing is we're basically utilizing the Costa Rican labor 
uh, we send the material in. We keep good track of what we send in mm-hmm. because it's for one for one. So if we send in a $10 bill, we've got to send a $10 bill of material back out. Okay. So that way it doesn't get st- stuck in there. And that's the same thing with Vietnam. So we're what we're able to do is anything that is manufactured in China, as long as we send it to either a Vietnam or to a um, uh, Costa Rica and transform it in a significant way, um, then we're able to bypass the tariff. So it, that's been a for us. It's been a it's been a game a game changer for us because mm-hmm. we have a lot of uh, companies that are are approaching us and having their product built in either Vietnam or in uh, Costa Rica. Well, that's great. So. Shifting gears a little bit, you recently completed a transaction to sell GMI to a bigger player. Can you talk about the acquirer a little sure. bit? Well, if I, before I do that, how it kind of, if I can, how it kind of got started. So um, in 2012, um, we we felt like uh, that we had saturated saturated this market. Um, we had pretty much all the the, the good customers, uh, the good companies in this region. Um, you know, for those folks that maybe I'm not building for, I'm not saying maybe we overlooked you, but but we, you know, there, but there are certain companas you want to do business with and there are others you don't want to do business with. And yet we wanted to grow the business. And so we really couldn't find a whole lot in this region. And most, most uh, OEMs or most manufacturers want to be, um, you know, close by their manufacturer. And so I started looking out to find someone to acquire. And so starting in 2012, I started looking. And um, um, in 2000, I guess 16 or no, I guess it was 2017, um, this company called East West, which I'd never heard of, was in Atlanta, just three and a half hours away. And they approached us and they were interested in acquiring us. And uh, the thing I liked about it is they had no stateside presence. Um, their only operation was in Vietnam, um, their manufacturing operation. Mm-hmm. But they had a sourcing group of about 50 to 60 engineers. So they had no local capabilities. Right, so they view exactly. Mooresville. They're, exactly. they're not going to shut Mooresville down because exactly. they like the idea of having an onshore. Exactly. Okay, that's they, great. Well, they, need, they needed a place to launch products. Mm-hmm. And their customers had come to them and saying, boy, you guys doing new product launches in Vietnam take a little bit longer than we'd like. So we felt like there was great synergy there. There was very a lot of great overlap. And so uh, so on top of that, we basically focused on electronic assemblies where they're more vertically integrated. They did the plastics, the metals, the castings, cables. They could do everything. Uh, they had design services, something we never had. So they kind of completed us, and we gave them that one little missing piece that they needed to really go to the next level. So um, so we made a decision that it seemed right. For, it was a win-win for both of us. So last January 3rd of 19, um, they bought the assets of GMI, and so we've, uh, we've been folded under them. And so actually this next month we're going to be officially becoming East-West Charlotte. So the general microcircuit's name is going to be Sunset, mm-hmm. and uh, will become East-West Charlotte. Since then, they've uh, bought companies in Raleigh. Um, they bought a company up in Boston. Um, they're looking at um, other acquisitions in other parts of the country. So they're looking to regionalize. Um, and then the hope is for us is, uh, is that these regional companies will be able to transfer some of their products to Costa Rica as well. That's awesome. And have you seen an, an uptick in, in uh, activity in Costa Rica as a result of East-West sending no, orders yeah, there? No, well, no question. No That's question. Great. And in Mooresville, I take exactly. it. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. And did you run a process with the banker both in 2012 when you were looking to, to be the acquirer and then it, when when they approached you or... Yeah, my my uh, my dad and I got my dad and I got together and we we talked to various folks here in town. Uh, we did talk to one of the banks. We talked to a couple of the other guys and and uh, you know everybody kept saying you need to do a book, need to do a book. But but we really the culture was more important to us than the bottom line price um, because um, and this is kind of goes back to my dad when textiles, you know textiles was on the way out. Well, my dad had great timing. Uh, Nineteen eighty, he sold the textile business. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the only negative is he feels like he sold it to the wrong company. And within seven, eight years, um, they pretty much, you know, they drove it in the ground. And so um, in 87, 88, they closed the plant. And dad really was intertwined with Mooresville. I mean, he was, you know, he was a scoutmaster. He, he used to live in Mooresville uh, for a period of time. So he was, you know, well recognized and he had a great reputation. We felt like he had done it wrong. He just felt like he'd sold the wrong, wrong company. So, so he's kind of instilled in me. He said, you know, if we sell this thing, let's make sure we sell it to the right folks because we want to make sure the 115 people in Mooresville are going to be gainfully employed after this. And they really are a family. I mean, you can feel it when you walk through your, your, your guys' facility. Yeah. So that's, so that's what we focused on. So we, we, um, we ended up hiring someone here, but we didn't do the book. What we just wanted to do is we had never been through this process, okay. but we wanted to make sure that we didn't leave any stone unturned. They have so bankers they here in us. Charlotte? Oh, I'd say a few. I'd say a few. <laughs> so, so what's your role now? Um, so I, I'm now becoming, it's been the first year, um, I, my title, I gave up the CEO, thank goodness. Uh, I no longer am a visionary. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's fun to be a visionary, but uh, so now I'm, I'm, my, my title is president of General okay. Mike Circuit Charlotte. Um, but where I'm really going to be focused mostly is customer engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is I just want to make sure our customers are ecstatic. I'm going to be really engaged in business development, not just for Charlotte, not just for Costa Rica, but for the whole East-West organization. So I'll be doing more traveling. Um, I'm really excited about that. Um, there's, I mean, East-West has got a great solution. Um, they're very responsive, very flexible. Um, there's a lot of big guys out, not a lot. There's um, a, maybe 20 really big guys out there that, um, that sometimes forget who the customer is. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about East West is um, they don't forget who the customer is and they want to give good value. Mm-hmm. And that's the exciting thing about it is they're, they're, just, uh, they're just a bigger version of what General Microcircuits was. That's awesome. So I want to shift gears a bit, and can you talk about the various charities and nonprofits you're involved with? Because I've been to a handful of events and joined boards and et cetera. So I'd love for you to uh, to just talk about some some of those. Well, I think the as I mentioned before, my dad said, you know, don't spread yourself too thin, mm-hmm. which I've tried not to. And uh, there's there's one um, organization here that I've been involved with for a little bit over thirty years, and it's called Festival in the Park. Mm-hmm. And uh, before you got too busy. You were kind enough to join our board for a few years, and that's where we got were able to engage a little bit. And you helped us with quite a bit with with the launch of the Kings Drive Art Walk, which mm-hmm. was a sibling of it. Um, but it's uh, it's going on its fifty third year, and actually, my oldest best friend, uh, his father, started it back in the uh, 1964. Wow, and it's an institution. It here. is. It's, it it is. really is. And um, so it, it's 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 really fun for me, is because I actually. I was actually executive director for it for a couple of a volunteer executive director for it for a couple of years before I got married. Um, I stayed on once I got married, but once I had kids, I realized, man, I really got to find a paying job that's <laughs> going to make. So I, um, so I, you know, so, so the neat thing is I was able to have all three, I have three kids and my three kids grew up at the festival every single year. And of course they would invite their friends out and it was just a great, at one time it was a six day event. Now we've shrunk it to a three day event. But um, it's just great to see the, the families come out. That's why I do it. I just like family is very important to me. And, mm-hmm. and T-I-M-E is how you spell love. And, um, mm-hmm. and so anytime that you can have quality time with your family members is important. That's what I, I like to sit up on the hill and just watch the families. Come well, it's such a beautiful age. venue for, for anybody who hasn't been to Charlotte. It's in a, a park called Freedom Park, which is just a gorgeous. I mean, it's 
I feel like anytime I want to impress anybody with with Charlotte, that's one of the places you take them because it's just it's it just re- we're really lucky to have that. We've, in had, the city. we've had a number of movies have used that as setting. Shallow uh, Howl, I've yeah, exactly, seen it on. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I've seen a lot of the locations there. Um, and then the other thing, of course, when you can get involved with Festival in the Park, Festival in the Park not only is it <laughs> a, a family event, but it's also arts and crafts, and there's also music as well. And so back in the I guess mid 1990s, I got engaged with the Arts and Science Council, which is a which was a big organization at the time here. It was a big money raiser. A lot of, of course, it tapped into all the banks and was able to get some, mm-hmm. some tremendous, I think annually they were raising 10 to $12 million a wow. year. And then 2008, 2009 came. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think they hired a, a couple of uh, new um, directors to run it. And it, it's changed over the years. And I guess the giving cycle has changed as, you mm-hmm. know, differently now. So it's not, the, uh, it's not the organization it once was, but I was really engaged with the ASC and really believed in its mission and what it was doing since then, it's uh, the folks that I knew are no longer with the organization, so I'm not mm-hmm. as intrigued, as, as engaged with them as I once was. One of the other things I worked on with you was the E4 Carolinas. Are you still involved in that and want to talk about what that yeah, was sure. all about? So, um, you know, of course, uh, 2008, we had the big recession here, and of course, the banks went, you know, spiraling. And uh, fortunately, um, we had a Duke Energy, um, you know, raise their hand. And, uh, and Jim Rogers was the yeah, CEO. Yes, at the time. exactly. And so he and this said, was before coal ash and some of the yeah. other problems that have but, but he, uh, progressive and, or uh, progress energy. Yeah. Yeah. And so of course, at this time we were engaged with probably 40% of our customers were energy related. And, uh, so I, so I was on the founding board of E4 Carolinas, which got started in probably 2010. And, and that still, was a commercial or, um, uh, it's the economic development. Yeah, regional partner. The Charlotte Regional Partnership was the one spearheading it. Yeah, spearheaded it. And then uh, in 2011, it decided it needed to go out on its own. Mm-hmm. And so we have the who's who of uh, energy organizations, the two Carolinas as members. And it's been really exciting to see the various energy organizations come together. They're collaborating on things. We're trying to build that new energy capital here mm-hmm. in the Carolinas. Uh, we've got over 200 members, and uh, they're all very, very active. Um, it's, it's really good to see what's happening here in the Carolinas. It, it is. It is awesome. And what was the one that I recently went to with you project? What was it called? It's, it's where they're, it started out getting young women to get more involved in the outdoors and your father. Oh, the unity. Yeah. The unity, unity project. project. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Sorry. I was thinking, I thought we were still in energy. I was like, what is that? No, no, no. Sorry. I'm yeah. Not. I was having a senior moment. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, the unity project. Um, so there's, uh, um, outdoor adventure learning, experimental and experiential experiential learning learning, yes um there's an organization called outward bound Mm -hmm. and of course they're all over the world got started in uh great britain Uh, but my dad was actually on the founding board back in uh gosh i guess it was way 1964 as well something like that so they're on their 53rd 54th year but he was on the founding board and just recently retired from the board but they uh started up something here in charlotte into the charlotte mecklenburg schools and so they are trying to get kids uh of various diversities from the inner city, also mm-hmm. from all parts of Charlotte. And they're trying to get them in the spring to go out into the wilderness and engage with one another and realize that we're all the same. Yeah. Uh, you take us outside of our, our, our comfortable environment and you realize that we're all the same. Mm-hmm. And so then after that, they come back and, and they get into the public schools and they have, like, for instance, when they come back, they actually have a day where, they're, where they go and sit beside someone that they don't know um, it and, might be a kid from Myers Park going to Geringer, right? Or well, no, it's actually just in Myers Park. Oh, is it just yeah. in Myers and Park? And so they are, are supposed to sit, go and sit with someone that they do not know okay, and uh, and get to know them. And so they've been able to build these links. And the idea is to try to try to see if we can bring, you know, lower this diversity issues that we have here. 
Yeah, it was really inspiring. There, there's a I don't know, remember the lady's name, but there was um, there's a, an iconic picture of the fir- when they first um, desegregated the Charlotte schools, and everybody's mm-hmm. seen it. There were four African American at Garinger walking into the school, and there's a crowd of angry racists, and, yep. it, 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 and she it, was spat on. She was spat on. Yeah, I mean, if, I mean, it's just one of those pictures worth a million words, and um, and she actually got up and spoke at it, which was really yeah. inspirational because she's. I'm, 80 years old now, or I, you know, I, I don't, I have no idea how old she is now, but it was, it was really cool to see that. And there were a couple of other really inspirational uh, speakers there as well. Are, are there other um, charities like that, that you're pretty, cause you, you guys were pretty heavily involved. I heard your father's name mentioned a couple of times. Oh, yeah. Well, that, you know, once again, that is, yeah. that is the one thing my dad has been engaged with. I mean, he is mm-hmm. passionate about it and uh, he has, he stuck with it over the years. And mm-hmm. that, that just demonstrates that that's the one thing he really wanted to focus on. I mean, it's, you know, like, for instance, I mean, Dad tells me that, you know, there's, uh, it seems like here in this community, um, it's, it sounds like if you give if if you give to someone, they expect you to give to back to their organization. <laughs> so if you've got 100 friends who have this special need, then by gosh, you're going to give to 100 different organizations. Yeah. And I think that's uh, that's kind of what works here in, in Charlotte. Uh, there's a core group of folks that that's, they scratch each other's back. Yeah. Well, clearly this is something you're passionate about it. And, and you've mentioned a couple of times your dad and instilled that in you. What are you doing with your children to kind of instill the same passion or do they just see it and it's infectious? I think it's going to be infectious. Um, I've been very, very fortunate. I think the bottom line is we try to instill activeness in our kids. We don't want them to be a spectators. We want them to be participants. Mm-hmm. And I've been very, very fortunate. So two of my three are married and, uh, and I can't be more happy about the two that the, the my two girls are married, and I mm-hmm. cannot be more happy with who they who they chose. Mm-hmm. Uh, just outstanding. And then my son, I have great great hope and great faith. He actually uh, he just graduated this past spring, and he went to Shanghai. Okay, so he's over there teaching English and uh, hopefully picking up a little bit of Chinese or Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he hopes to come back here um, okay. in a year and start work here in Charlotte. He he is excited about getting back to Charlotte. Um, yeah. I mean. He went to TCU, and of course, you know, Texas is a great place to be, but he, he sees the vibrancy of Charlotte and is real excited about what's, what's yep. here. That's great. And do, what advice do you have for someone looking to get more involved in their community but not knowing where to get started? And it, it could be Charlotte or it could be just more general advice. Um, Gosh, there, there. I mean, there's all. First of all, you have to figure out what you're passionate about. Okay, um, that's the first thing. You just. I remember I actually joined a couple of organizations. I just didn't get really fired up about. I think I can't remember how I was coerced to get into them, but somehow I got into it, and I just was not there. I did not look forward to go to a meeting or look forward to doing certain or someone assigned me to a committee, and I just I don't want to do that. Yeah. So the last thing is, do not go down that that channel. You got to first figure out what you're passionate about, mm-hmm. and then once you are. Then, uh, then figure out, you know, someone, um, you know, that you can that you can connect with and say, hey, I'd like to volunteer. That, that's how I got involved. Was you inviting me on? It, you told me about festival in the park, and I was like, oh, that's great. How can I help out? And then I felt like once I started doing that, it was just easier to find other things to get involved with, uh, for well, sure. I mean, John. I mean, I guess we've known each other about ten years now, and I'm just amazed at how engaged. I mean, you're not you're not a charlatan. Yeah, I mean, I'm I a like Charlottean. <laughs> yeah, no, you are now. You know, probably ten times more people than I know, and I've been here my whole life. I mean, I'm just. I mean, there's no question. You know, your age group and that millennial and in your sector, it's, yeah. it's just amazing. Engaged, especially with the uh, entrepreneurial group. And, and we're going to talk more about it, but I think the work that you and your father and 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 his father have have done has done a lot to make people really like this community and really want to be a part of it. So it's a testament to what the people 
who, who came before all of us. Cause once you see that it's inspirational and you feel like I need to, I need to pay that forward. Now yeah. I need to be part of this machine. Yeah. And that's gotta be really uh, gratifying for you and your father to see that type of thing. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. It's, it's, it goes back to uh, 1978. Um, or I guess it's probably 1980. Um, there's a place on Providence road called uh, Providence road sundries. Mm -hmm. And before it was called Duramuses when I was growing up, uh, Durham, it was owned by the Duramuses. And so we called the local folks called it Duramuses. And we'd always go there, and I'll never forget, we were sitting at the bar one time, and there were some people there that were just really kind of um, really upset that the outsiders, IBM, you know, and some of these other outside Fortune 500 companies were invading Charlotte. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, um, you know, the banks, uh, mm -hmm. the two big banks at the time, at that time, I guess it was NCNB. I don't even think it wasn't Bank of America. It was NCNB. And what union? And it was First Union. union first Union. Okay. You know, I think they were First Union by then. Okay. Um, and then, of course, you had Duke Energy, mm -hmm. Bill Lee with Duke Energy. Um, and then you had John Belk, uh, who was the mayor at the time. And also on top of that, of course, he was with Belk as well. Mm -hmm. But those guys right there really were the nucleus. They were kind of the Chinese group. I mean, they were, if you yeah. wanted something done, you went to those. Of course, Harvey Gant got involved in that as well. But, but basically, if you wanted something done, you went to those folks. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it got done. Um, now it's a lot more, I mean, there's a group of CEOs now in Charlotte. I think it's as many as 25 that get together, maybe on a quarterly yeah, and basis. And I guess Hugh McCall and Crutchfield in between, yes. in between now and, and then as well, were probably part of that. But, but those were the, those are the ones that really got it going. Yeah. And, uh, I think Tom Stores was the time it was the, was the guy in 1980 at the time, but, but they opened up the community and they were willing to give the loans and, and, um, and they're the ones that really got Charlotte going. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course there's no question in the eighties and even the nineties, you go downtown, it was like a ghost town. I've heard. And then finally in the late nineties and the two thousands, things really started. And now it's just, I, so I was driving, I, so I work up in Mooresville. I live in Southeast Charlotte. And so now, you know, I'm driving through downtown on the way home. You count 14 to 16 cranes. Yeah. It is amazing that, you know, I thought it, I thought it was going to die down, but it just seems like it's picked right back up. Well, even Plaza Midwood, my neighborhood, which is a mile and a half outside of center city, you come through here on a Saturday, any time of day, and you have to be careful because there's pedestrians everywhere just walking around, yeah. shopping, going to restaurants, going to bars. It's, it's really cool to, to, to see how alive the city is. And, and, I, and again, it's a testament to the people who, who thought ahead and, and, and thought we can have something better. Um, well, I, well, I grew up in the Eastover Myers Park area. That's where, that's where I grew up. And I remember there were people in the neighborhood that used to think that if you're outside of Wendover, which is a band, mm -hmm. they think anything outside of Wendover was the country. Yeah. And if you lived outside the Wendover, nobody would come visit you because that was just way <laughs> too far. And so we actually, uh, when, when we, uh, we moved into a little neighborhood right off of Fairview called Carmel Park, and it was, you know, we had a couple acres there. There were five ponds back there. It was just absolutely beautiful. And most, most people didn't realize it was even there. Um, but traffic on Fairview got really, really bad. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, so we have since moved into Sharon Lane, which okay. is only a half mile. But it takes me 10 minutes less to get to work up in Mooresville. Wow. Because you go outside the Wendover Band, it's crazy. But yeah. inside, the, the, develop, the infrastructure was already there. So yeah. except for the 5 o'clock hour, it's not bad. <laughs> so, so you mentioned it a little bit. Your family is a long-established Charlotte family, true natives. Um, and as someone who moved here from a bigger city, I've, as I've mentioned, I've felt consistently very welcome here by established business people like yourself, and there's there's quite a few others. Am I right that this is a thing in Charlotte? Is it something that you think Charlotte recognizes? Um, I believe it is, yeah. um, but there, there's no question anytime that you have – there, there's no question we're more of a melting pot than we once were. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more diversity here than mm -hmm. we had 20, 30 years ago. 
Um, so I may, we may have lost a little bit of our charm, mm -hmm. but there's no question we probably have more of a can-do spirit now than we did because mm -hmm. the folks that are moving here are looking for something. They're wanting to be participants. Yep. They're not sitting back and being spectators. Um, the other thing is I think the way we've developed is we still have Charlotte as a whole. Yeah, sure, we have Ballantyne, we have Matthews, we have Pineville, Huntersville, but but well, and Davidson has kind of emerged too. There's there's quite a bit going on in Davidson. Oh, well, there is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, but it, but you still have Charlotte as a whole. And of course, the one thing is as we've mentioned before is that Charlotte Airport is such a magnet. I mean, mm -hmm. that's our that's our economic driver. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you read where I think the originally airport when it was built in '81 was supposed to handle about three to four million people. And I think they're now having over 45 million people coming through there, maybe wow. more 60. It's the seventh busiest in the yeah. world. It's yeah, crazy. It is. Yeah. So um, why do you think all of this is? Is there an unwritten code or <laughs> that, that, that Charlotte business people are so welcoming and that people are lo constantly looking to grow the city and thinking about the city and being so welcoming to, to outsiders or is it just a necessity of geography we don't have a river we don't have a port we don't you know we don't have something you mentioned the airport but we yeah, didn't always yeah. have that even well the other proximity is i mean if i if i if i wouldn't pick a place you got great temperatures here mm -hmm. year round for the most part i mean it feels like spring out there today uh, we're so close to the mountains we're so close to the beach if you're mm -hmm. an active person uh, yeah. plus the the uh, road system you got 85 you got 77 it's easy to get here from yeah. almost anywhere in the east of the Mississippi. Yep. So we're, the proximity is great. Plus mm -hmm. the airport, like I said, you can get anywhere direct. So it's easy to get to. And I think even a lot of um, the younger folks, their parents are now moving here. Yeah. And I don't think that I don't think many of the young kids here are moving to their parents' community. I yeah. think it's the other way around. I mean, I've talked to a lot of folks, so I think it's become more of a melting pot of all ages here. So can you speak, and you, you might have already answered this with your last comment, but can you speak to your thoughts on why Charlotte overtook the other cities in North Carolina? As I understand, it was significantly smaller than a Durham. I mean, I think Durham and Winston-Salem over the last 150 years have historically been the biggest cities. Um, and those cities have world-class universities and right. other advantages. Is it those roads and the climate? Because no, they have well, Charlotte, roads Charlotte, and climate well, as well. Well, Charlotte's where the money is. Yeah. I mean, the banks are here. That's true. And so, you know, Hugh McCall. And um, the airport. Yeah. yeah, but really, I mean, Hugh McCall really, I mean, I mean, he really gets most of the credit for Charlotte's development. I mean, he looked outside the box. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the interstate banking, he was, I mean, he took some risk in the early 80s. Yeah. And, but it all panned out when he went down to Texas to buy the bank down there. I mean, he did something that really wasn't supposed to happen yeah and uh, little old charlotte and then of course <laughs> the other thing is uh you know george shin don't forget about that with the hornets i yep. mean that was an 88 or 89 i guess it was 88 i mean that right there was a was a big start yeah. that really put us on the map i mean i mean it was charlotte i mean finally we were able to get rid of that nc at the yeah. end is the charlotte hornets and What's then we sold out all those years i had season tickets for all 14 years. I hear it was they amazing the first during oh, it those was. years. Yeah. Well, I remember the first win. Yeah. I mean, the, fir well, the first game, <laughs> we lost by 45 points. It was awful. It was wow. I think it was 45 points we lost, but it was oh, – and we, we gave everybody a standing – we gave the team a standing ovation because it was our team. That's great. And then, of course, the, the NFL team came. But really, the, you know, those, those were probably the two things. What, what Hugh did – uh, I still say that before that in 78, when IBM decided to move down here, their that manufacturing, was a big deal. Yeah. that was big. That's that, that was the first big company from outside that moved in this area. Mm -hmm. They brought the technology. So we had, so I'd say we have IBM, of course, Bank of America, and then the Hornets. Okay. Those are the three big things in the eighties that really, 
made things happen. It's funny. I like to tell people the story of the Whitewater Center. It's not as well known as it probably should be, but I think everybody in Charlotte realizes that we're very lucky to have it. And the story behind that, I don't know if you've heard how that came to be with no, Vic Howie. Please uh, share. No, share. So Vic Howie was working for, for Hugh and, and the Bank of America crew, and he went down, to, uh, Bank of America dispatched him to Atlanta for the 96 Olympics. And so he made a lot of connections, just helping people out. The Bank of America just felt like, we're not making money off of this, but we're building relationships. And he was down there helping out with the Olympics and he got invited to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. And he goes down again, a bank of America banker. And they, the, uh, one of the Olympic crews that he was down there with took him on a tour of their whitewater facility in Sydney. And Sydney is a 6 million person world-class city, gorgeous. And they've got this crazy whitewater center where they train the Australian, uh, uh, whitewater team. And, and he asked a whole bunch of questions, really, really smart, ambitious guy. And he's like asking them questions. And they're like, why are you asking so much? And he goes, because we're going to build one in Charlotte. <laughs> and they were like, Charlotte? <laughs> like, this is the only one in the world. This is Sydney. <laughs> like you're, and and it's, I, I just picture that mentality of, yeah, but like we built the biggest bank in the world in Charlotte. And yes. again, somebody who worked that close to Hugh McCall, you can understand that like we're going to punch above our weight. And uh, the, the original site that Vic wanted to build it on, he got the money lined up and they were going to build it inside the 277 loop in uh, Fourth Ward over where the... Um, the music center, oh, the really? music factory is. And then 9-11 happened. The funding fell apart. And, yeah. and I may be butchering this story. I intend to get Vic on, on the podcast at some point. But uh, as, as I recall him telling me, he then revisited it and they took the site that's out. Yeah, I don't know where you'd call that now. It's out closer to but Belmont, I guess. Yeah. But but, I, but the thing I understand, and maybe I'm wrong, though, but he convinced uh, the banks to loan up to $30 million for the yeah. event. And then, if I'm not mistaken, they actually forg- forgave the loans. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, uh, I mean, and it's, now it's financially successful, exactly. but for a long exactly. time, it struggled. Yeah, it couldn't. Yeah, yeah. But, but the reason was there was no road system out yeah. there. Yeah. It was before it was before the uh, 485 loop was yeah. developed and there's really no direct access. Yeah. And that was the biggest issue. And, you know, but it is a gem. It's one of the most underrated p- places in, in yeah. Charlotte for my yeah, Well, this just goes to show you, I've only been there one time. Okay. I'm a native. It's just like, I believe it or not, I'm a native of North Carolina. I have never been to Kitty Hawk. Oh, wow. I've never. <laughs> how many times I've been to Disney World? I've been to Disney World at least twelve to fifteen times. It takes eight and a half hours <laughs> from here to Disney World. Eight and a half hours to Kitty Hawk, and I've, my kids have always said, "Let's let's go south." So one of these <laughs> That's days, funny. so I'm waiting. I'm trying to get my son to get his uh, pilot's license. Okay. maybe he'll fly me out to Kitty Hawk. Okay, yeah. one of my friends was just at CES in Vegas, and and can't stop talking about this two hundred thousand dollar personal. Um, electric helicopter. So maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe when one of your your mid managers uh, that sounds good buys sounds one, good. You, you can you can buy one for uh, Bentley. Maybe, maybe I can lease one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. lease one. <laughs> so what's changed the most in Charlotte in your lifetime, Dave? Um, size, size. Yeah, I think size is it. Um, I mean to think about. I mean the road system. I remember actually. I remember when I seventy seven didn't even exist. Um, I 77, wow. it was, we still, my dad always had, he lived in Charlotte. He had to go up highway 21, okay. um, before even 77 even existed. Wow. I remember when 277 didn't exist and I remember it was little pieces of it. So what was interesting is see someone had the, you know, foresight, the foresight yeah. to actually, I mean, there was parts of 277 that were built, but the rest were not. Well, there were neighborhoods that they had to take down to build 277, right? I thought I'd read that. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because that yeah. would have yeah that would have been uh, that would have been for, it would have the been, Brooklyn uh, neighborhood. It would have been, yeah, been Second Ward. Okay, it would have been Second Ward. Uh, actually, my it was really interesting. My my parents who lived in Mooresville for a while, 
Um, when my dad was with textiles, my mom actually uh, disassembled a, an old house in uh, in Mooresville and had it trucked down 115 all the way to Fourth Ward. Had it reassembled in Fourth Ward, and right before they were getting ready to move in, a vagrant came in and burned the house down. Oh no! And so they were actually uh, they were actually going to be the pioneers of Fourth Ward. Okay. And um, and unfortunately, my, well, my dad actually rebuilt the house, but instead of it being old, it was spick and okay. And so they just never lived in it. Well, there's a Victorian, a yellow Victorian house on the plaza. And if I recall correctly, I read in a, a historical book that it used to be in Fourth Ward. And they moved and, it out. And they moved it out here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we talked about what's changed the most in Charlotte, just the size of the city, the density. What do you think needs, needs to change the most? Um, I think that, you know, we talk about how inclusive we are. But um, but I think we need to become more accepting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no question from a national standpoint, we've become extremely divisive, mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate because um, I mean, uh, you know, the media un- unfortunately has just created a lot of this. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, if there's a way that we could become more inclusive and more accepting of others, it'd be great. But unfortunately, it seems like it's going the pendulum, and I know mm-hmm. pendulums do shift, but I, yeah. I don't know what that pendulum is going to be that's going to shift everything back in the same direction. So well, hopefully it's things like the unity project that can help, help yeah, drive that. It'd be um, good. And even, you know, unfortunately, even, uh, even the, the houses of faith right now are becoming very divisive. So, okay. I mean, I'm not sure if there's really a, a place right now that you can escape to. We, um, you know, my wife and I, we absolutely love Charlotte, but fortunately my wife's from a little town in Southwest Virginia. So that's kind of our getaway place. We go up there quite a bit Okay, and it's a lot more peaceful up there yeah. than down here. <laughs> but so I mean, Charlotte's just a great place. Yeah, I think it is too. I think one of the things that's frustrating to me is this rivalry between Charlotte and Raleigh. And we see it with HB2. Um, we, we saw it with the airport debacle. Um, we, we, we see it time and again. And it, it just is so silly to me because Charlotte is, although I love Charlotte, it's not it's not yet a, a city that can compete with an Atlanta or a New York. But I think if you combine that corridor from Charlotte to Raleigh and you take their world class universities with our world class companies and banks, it's it's a that's a really compelling value mm-hmm. proposition. But it seems like the two cities just there's a rivalry that, it, that just escapes me. Uh, well, I guess the one thing I've envisioned is if you look geography is really Charlotte's kind of the middle star. Um, especially when we're looking at the energy sector. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got, like I said, we've got Raleigh and you've got Greensboro. You have Atlanta where Georgia Tech is. You've mm-hmm. got Blacksburg where Virginia Tech is, big in the energy. Yep. You have Knoxville. Um, we're right there. You have Greenville. Um, so you, you have Columbia. Mm-hmm. So we're really in the center spoke. So yep. really we have that opportunity to really be that center hub to connect all the dots. And uh, I know with E4 Carolinas, E4 Carolinas done a great job of getting all the uh, universities to collaborate with one another. Every university has their strengths, and, mm-hmm. uh, so if as long as you can find ways to collaborate, it works. And then doing the same thing with the organizations. And then I know you're a Duke man, and of course I'm a Chapel Hill man. And mm-hmm. um, the crazy thing is, you know, the universities have actually brought the, I believe, has brought the community together because here in Charlotte, you'll find that there is a lot of Eastern girls that grew up in the eastern part of the state marrying guys on the west. <laughs> so there, there is a lot of at least that has brought together. And of course, you know, the other thing we now see is urban versus rural. Yeah, um, and everybody's moving to the urban. Yeah. And the toughest thing now is, is, is how is this state going to keep the rural areas, um, you know, vibrant? Yeah. Um, because there is so much poverty in the rural areas. Well, I, I say it joking around, but I, I tell my friends who aren't from Charlotte, I'm like, yeah, I live in Charlotte. I'm 20 minute drive to North Carolina because um, <laughs> it is, it's, it, it is very different between the, yeah. the, the rural and, and the, uh, and the urban areas. But one thing I always, when I got really upset with Raleigh, cause you know, I, 
many of our customers have been up there over the years, and you up there and you see the road systems just incredible compared. And of course, we have a larger I population. Was, I was there yesterday. Yeah, and it, it's the same thing in Virginia. All the money is in Northern Virginia. But, oh yes, but the capital is in Richmond, and the roads in Richmond are so much better. Exactly, exactly. But the one thing I've always threatened is say, why can't we try to? Uh, um, see if we can be hijacked to South Carolina. We'll go to South Carolina and say, hey, we'll become your state capital, yeah. and uh, we, we'll succeed to South Carolina. Um, I mean, we got Tepper's already done it, so why don't we uh, yeah. Why don't we just go ahead and do it? I know there'll be a lot of change of zip codes and, uh, and mailing addresses, but, hey, I'm all for it. A funny story, our, um, one of our investors at NextGrid, when he heard that I was from Charlotte, he said that he had a friend who was, um, who was from South Carolina and I think was in – either a senator in the House of Representatives for South Carolina and a new mayor was elected in Charlotte. And he, he, he called him and said, I wanted to congratulate my new mayor because uh, they, they identified Charlotte is oh, the big city for South sure, Carolina. Sure. <laughs> we're, we're what, exit number seven? I yeah. Mean, <laughs> well, the biggest thing is, yes, Charles, you have Charleston, South Carolina, you have Charlotte, you have Charlottesville and uh, Charleston, West Virginia. So the, you have the CH factor going yeah, on. Yeah. Okay. Out. But we feel like that we're finally world-class so we can get rid of the NC. <laughs> Exactly. So, so what in our city today excites you the most in terms of where we're going in the future? We've talked about what should change and, and what's changed the most, but what excites you the most when you look out at, at where we're going? Um, I think, you know, it all starts with the airport. Um, you know, one thing I guess opened my eyes with East-West. East-West is headquartered in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And between Atlanta's airport and Charlotte's airport, you're one stop away from any place in the world. Wow. So if you really want to go somewhere in the world – either leave Charlotte or you go down to Atlanta, get on the airport there and you can be any place. I mean, it takes you no more than, I mean, 20 hours and you're somewhere, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Delta can get you to Africa. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't get there from Charlotte, but Mm -hmm. you can get there from Atlanta. Um, Actually, I have one of my employees that's been in, um, um, has been in, this is diverts a little bit, but um, has been with us in China. Uh, She decided to move to Kenya. And uh, so she's developing a business in Kenya and she's actually a native Chinese. She's uh, okay. from China. And uh, she's already in a three-month period. She's realized what her business is going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, she says there's direct flights to New York City and Toronto. And so she's going to use those avenues. So, you know, there's no question. I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we can go anywhere now. Yeah. And, you know, back, I remember back, we used to get dressed to go to the airport to get on a plane. <laughs> now you see people on tank tops, flip oh, yeah. flops, the whole words. But, I mean, it used to be, it was like, you know, you, you put on your Sunday best to go to the airport to get yeah. on a plane. Well, it's interesting. Now because, it's like the bus of, I mean, it's now it's like Greyhound. Well, it's interesting. Airports are so important. I mean, when you look at Dallas, I, I spent a lot of time in Dallas, and that's just a world-class airport. And you can't oh, yeah. imagine that city being what it is with, without DFW. It's, it's really, I think, an overlooked asset. And from my understanding, back, I don't know if it was Piedmont or U.S. Airways that was looking at putting a hub in either Richmond or or Charlotte, and, and the Richmond... Um, you know, your, your father's and the, 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 your father of Richmond uh-huh. said, no, go away. We don't want the airport here. Yeah. And supposedly Charlotte was much more welcoming. So that's a lot of foresight too, to, to well, sure. bring the, a hub airport to a city. Well, you know, it's the same thing. Start Statesville, North Carolina. You would think Statesville because they've got 40 and they got 77 going through. Mm-hmm. You would think Statesville would be one mm-hmm. of those that would just blossom. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, and they, I mean, they've got the river, they got Catawba mm-hmm. River up there. They have Lake Norman. But the, uh, the folks there wanted to stay small. Mm-hmm. They didn't welcome the outsiders to come in. And so you see all the other communities south of Statesville, they've just they've blossomed. Statesville is now trying to catch up, mm-hmm. but they were, they were really slow to develop. Yeah, it's, you know, when I look at what excites me, you, 
you're talking about a like a approximate cause of what's what what you're excited about. I think the results of that, um, directly or indirectly, there's a lot to choose from. I mean, when you look at what Avid Exchange is doing and raising billions of dollars and Map Anything and Passport and Red Ventures, um, and a host of other amazing startup success stories. When you look at uh, BB&T and SunTrust joining and becoming Truist and moving the sixth biggest bank in the country mm-hmm. to Charlotte um, and getting an MLS team. Th- there's definitely a lot going on in, in the Queen City to be excited yeah. about right now. Well, you know, not to get your head too big, but when I met you 10 years ago, I said, man, how did Charlotte get so lucky oh. to get John Espy in here? And then, <laughs> and then I kept thinking the next, you know, you're going to leave, you're going to leave, you're going to go to Texas, you know, because you're, you're engaged. I mean, you're – I mean, there was a period where you were flying all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I said, holy moly, we're not, there's no way we're going to keep John Espy in Charlotte. <laughs> but by gosh, you decided that family, this is a good place to be. Yeah, this and, is a great place. And there's a lot of John Espy, not, you know, there's a lot of there super, are there are a lot of John Espy's here in Charlotte. And a lot of way more Charlotte. impressive people. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm saying there are a lot of John Espy's in Charlotte. And I think that, you know, if I, if I really look to the future, um, there is a lot of young entrepreneurs and uh, folks in here that are really going to make it big. And, um, well, no, thanks. And again, it's, it's a big, it's exciting. It, it is exciting. But I, but I think again, that's a testament to the mindset that people like your father and a lot of his colleagues, and then you and a lot of your colleagues where, yes, we're the old Charlotte mm-hmm. crew, but we're welcoming to others. We're inviting them. We're, we're, we're taking them. Dave took me to, um, a very nice home in Quail Hollow on the seventh hole. And we watched, uh, <laughs> Watch the the golf tournament from there. Of I course, we, I think we saw Tiger Wood plop it in the water. We, a couple we did. Of times, we saw Tiger we? go in the water. Yeah. I will point out that after he got the business, he never brought me back there again. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I think I can't I can't overstate what that means. I think to this city having having the people who have been there before being so welcoming and and inviting people to join the boards and the, and 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 making introductions to other folks within that circle. I mean, I think that that just uh, is very forward thinking and, and we're seeing the, the fruits of that. And it's why we see the growth that you're talking about. But, you know, the one thing, and the one thing I noticed that you are, you are interested in forming relationships. And unfortunately we've become a very transactional world. Mm-hmm. Internet's made it that um, a lot of people just want to get behind their telephones and just transact. Um, and it takes time to build relationships. And, um, and that, and that's the thing that's, that's hard to do nowadays because it is busy. I mean, I bet I get 300 emails every single daggum day. Yeah. And it's just, you feel like you got to respond to every one of them because uh-huh. you're going to miss out on something. Yeah. And that takes you away from building those relationships. And, um, and that's one thing I, I still enjoy seeing in, in schools. Uh, my, my kids in the high schools, they still had strong relationships with their friends and they kept them. Yeah. Um, and many of, you know, when they leave high school, they go to the college and then they'll go off. And a lot of my uh, sons and daughters, classmates have gone to the bigger cities, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, some have gone out West. Some have gone to Texas. Yeah, uh, but many of them keep talking about how they eventually want to come back this way. They just felt like they need to leave for a little bit. Yeah, but many of them want to come back this area. Well, they, I hope that happens bit. in Charlotte. I've never really thought about that. Where I have thought about that is Richmond. I've done a lot of business in Richmond, and I've explained some of the challenges Richmond's had. But the one thing I will say for Richmond is that people want to come back. Most yeah. people that I meet who are from Richmond, they are coming back at some point. Whether it's the husband or the wife, they're going to come back, and I. I, hopefully that's the case here in Charlotte. I, you know, I, I really don't, it, it's hard for me to tell cause I've only been here for 12 or, or, or 13. Um, I moved here in 05. So geez, 15 years now. Right. Um, but, but the other thing that I've noticed and, and 
Atlanta is very unique. I feel like Atlanta is the same way, even though it's a big city and, and brings in a lot of transplants. A lot of people are from Atlanta and want to be in Atlanta. And I think I attribute that to Atlanta is one of those rare cities that has, it's a big, massive, massive city with tons and tons of employers. But you also have one of the top engineering programs oh, yeah. in the world there in Georgia Tech. And, and uh, hopefully with what they're doing at UNC Charlotte, we can get there too. Because yeah. I think that's a big factor in Atlanta's success. You know, one crazy thing for me that I've noticed is I've tried many times to go down there and find business in Atlanta. And of course, in the electronics world, there's very little electronics mm -hmm. companies. There's a lot of software companies down there. And yeah. There's a lot of marketing. There's a lot of distribution, a lot of, I guess, fintech, yep. a lot of that down there. Payments is huge down yeah. there. Payments is huge. Obviously, the airlines are huge, Home Depot, retail. It, I, I feel like it's a little bit more of a diverse set of, of companies down mm -hmm. there than, than we have here in Charlotte. There's a group called Engage VC that um, basically uh, there's a gentleman named Tiago Olson, and I can't remember his business partner's name, but they got 12 big corporates together and had them invest, I think, one to two million dollars each into a venture capital fund that they then invest in early stage companies. And you can map kind of one-to-one -one their mm. portfolio companies with UPS, with Home Depot, with oh. SunTrust, with um, Time Warner, with, uh, you know, you, you name the big company. And that's one of the, I, I feel like the one downside to Charlotte, we do have some world-beating companies, but they're very concentrated in healthcare, energy, and banking. And mm. so they, it's competitive. It's hard to imagine Truist, Bank of America, Ally, and Wells Fargo collaborating the way that UPS, Home Depot, right. and Warner might be able yeah. to. Well, the other thing is, I guess, we unfortunately, we don't have a real strong funding mechanism for those startups here. Yeah. And I think you can speak to that more. But I think that's probably the, the one of the other areas that we've got to do a better job. I mean, yeah. you go to Austin and you go to San Jose. Yeah. You go to places. I mean, there is so much money over there. Yeah. And they're, they're looking for things to get into. Here, it's a much more conservative Yeah. Um, yeah, the investors here, I, I think, have a very different mindset. I, I Personally, I don't know that that's as big of a problem as, as we say that it is, because the reality is Map Anything raised, I don't know, $80 million. Avid Exchange has raised probably close to a billion. Mm -hmm. um, Passport has recently completed a Series D. Um, and in fact, that one of the best uh, up-and-coming venture funds in, in the in the U.S., certainly on the East Coast, maybe arguably in the whole U.S., is Revolution Capital out of D.C., which is Steve um, Steve Case from AOL. They just started a fund called Rise of the Rest, and they're actively going after the non-Austin, non-San Francisco, okay. uh, non-D.C. markets. And um, there's a, a startup called Prion. I had their founder on my podcast. He invented Alexa while he was – well, he invented – the technology that he sold to Amazon that became Alexa while he was in Charlotte and his new business is in Raleigh, but he just raised $20 million led by, led by those guys. So wow. I, I agree with you that it would be great to have venture capital here. And I agree that there is not a lot here. Yeah. Um, but the good news is but I think be the, found. The, the secrets out that there are yeah. good startups like, and they're not startups anymore, but red sure. ventures, passport map. Anything. Lending tree. Yeah. Lending tree. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me. Um, we've talked about it. I know you've set an example for me over the decade. I've known you for how a business person should carry themselves, and I appreciate you sharing your thoughts and experiences with uh, with the guests. Before I let you go, is there anything else? Yeah, I just can't wait to see the next twenty. Uh, what the next twenty years have in store for you? Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to sitting on the sidelines here in about another ten years and see you just continue to I, to uh, to bring 
great things to Charlotte. I, I doubt, I, 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 hopefully I bring great things to Charlotte. I doubt the part about you sitting on the sidelines. I suspect that you're going to be just like your father. And at 95, you're going to be running around and looking over ledgers and <laughs> no, I don't know about that. I'll, I'll be involved. I'll be active, but I don't think I'll be looking over ledgers. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks Dave. Cheers. All right. Thank you.